0: Good morning. Thank you, Tripp. If you don't know my name, that's totally normal. Uh, my name is Brad. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, as we continue to learn from this book, from this letter uh, that was written uh, nearly 2,000 years ago to a church uh, in a city much like ours, uh, the, the city of Ephesus. Uh, and it's been fun so far to look at this book, and we have—we're uh, getting close to the halfway point, or the quarterway point, something like that. Uh, and it's—it's it's really great. That's all I have to say about that. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, a few weeks after I turned 11 years old, my family and I moved to another country, and I've shared that a lot because it's a core part of my identity. It's hard to, to separate that. Sometimes people get annoyed, like my friends in college, they would say, God, here's another story about this country we've never been to, but here you go, like you're my friends now, so you get to hear the same stories over and over again. But when I was 11 years old, my family moved to this other country, Uh, we moved to the city of Lisbon, Portugal, it's a big, beautiful, noisy, loud city where people uh, portray the sense of relaxation until they get in a car, so it's a lot like our city. Uh, lisbon uh, was was really fun. I can remember we flew there uh, and we landed and From the very first moments that we arrived, I began to realize I was in a world i 'd never seen before like an adventurous, exciting thing, but also a world i'd never never known the the Airport itself smelled completely different. The, the, the smells of the country, the, the sights and the sounds, I can remember really vividly as an 11-year-old seeing the security guards there with berets and machine guns, thinking, well, this is like, we are not in Oklahoma or Texas anymore. This is a really far cry from Virginia, where we lived right before we moved. And we just landed, and as we got out of the airport... Uh, the, the chaos of the city, I realized, was completely different as well. Other people spoke a different language. They, uh, they thought in a world that in a way that I never thought anyone could think before. The whole thing operated in a rhythm that I wasn't privy to uh, as a kid from Texas. I didn't have the same rhythm that this city had. I I can remember trying to order pizza the first night that we were there. My dad was very gifted with language and was able to order over the phone. And then when we went to pick it up, the crust was all burned on purpose uh, on this wood not now we 're cool global society, and we have wood furnaces everywhere for pizza, but it was a wood burnt, like, uh, wood uh, oven burned pizza, and it had these ingredients on it that were very strange, And I just began to feel slowly, this is a great adventure, but this is not where I belong. A few weeks after we moved there, I got in line uh, with my family at the Immigration office, and the line uh, went down a spiral staircase, went out the street and around the corner. And there we were, standing in this line uh, with Eastern Europeans, with North Africans, with South Americans, from all the places that Portugal had colonized, uh, plus us. And I can remember uh, asking my dad, "What does that word mean on the door?" And he says, oh, it's the office of the strangers. Uh, is the, the place of the estrangeiros. And we're all, in this line, we were all estrangeiros. We were all foreigners. Uh, that, that moment really became part of my identity. That's why I talk about it regularly. Uh, from that moment on, I began to learn other things. I learned the history of the country. I went to all the places all the kids go On uh, field trips. I saw the castles. I I knew poetry in Portuguese. My dad was very, you know, stern on us learning those things. Uh, I began to learn the language. I could speak. I slowly started to dress differently to, to fit in. My tastes changed. The smell of Portugal is now for me a smell of home. But all the while I knew people were just staring at me. As I became a teenager, it wasn't this weird thing that most teenagers have where everyone's looking at me. It was real. Everyone was looking at this blonde, blue haired, uh, taller than average, chubbier than average boy. Uh, they saw our family walk around and they noticed us because we didn't, we didn't belong. Like this, we were not in our natural habitat. Uh, kind of like when you see a zoo animal in the wrong exhibit. That's what we were like. It's like, I don't think that the, yeah, that the whale is supposed to be in the jungle. That's what we were like. And as I slowly began to learn all of these new things, it didn't matter how much I learned. It didn't matter that I knew the same history that my friends did. It didn't matter that I cheered for the same soccer team that they cheered for. It didn't matter that I was more excited for Portugal to play in the World Cup than the United States. There was a, Because in a culture, the continuous line of one family handing off the, the culture to the next is different than anybody just coming in and learning it. I was a stranger, and I began to feel like I didn't belong. Uh, like I, I wasn't from those parts. And no matter what I did, I would never truly be like everyone else around me. And the reason I bring that up is because I don't think I'm that special I think there's all sorts of things that happen in our lives that make us feel that way, that we don't belong. Maybe it's you're in an industry where nobody else looks like you in that industry, and you begin to think, I know I got into the industry, I know I, I, I'm working here, but I don't think I really belong. Or our background doesn't match everybody else's background. Or we look around and we say, well, I know, you know, like my wife's joke was really funny. Uh, She felt like she was standing before the UN General Assembly because there are all these men here. That's a funny joke. Uh, Because if you were to be a female ambassador like our ambassador to the UN right now, Nikki Haley, she's very few like a woman as an ambassador. And so I'm sure she feels often, well, I don't think I belong in this crowd. Uh, We begin to feel that way all through life. But I also think that uh, it's not just out there in the world where we might feel like strangers. It's also in here or with these people, as members of the church, we might feel, I don't know if I belong. You, can, you might be thinking, well, I wasn't here at the beginning. I know they let me be part of the church, but I'm not, I wasn't here when it all got started. Uh, I, I come from a different a part of the country than a lot of the people here, so maybe I don't fit in. Or maybe you didn't grow up in the same background that you might perceive everyone else, and you say, well, I wasn't raised as a Christian, so how do I fit in? I wasn't raised in a white evangelical world, so can I really be part of it? My family is a mess, and they're all broken uh, and shattered. That's how I was raised. It looks like these people weren't. Do I really... I don't have the same perspective and personality that all of these other people have. I'm not gifted the same way others are gifted. I don't think through problems the way that others in the church think through the problems. I don't have the same finances as everyone else. These people have great gifts. I don't know if I have the same mix. I don't see anyone around here quite like me. And you might as well think that, yeah, I can be part of this church, just like I was part of Lisbon, but I don't belong. And that, that tension of a whole group of people being part of the church is not new. And people saying, well, maybe I don't quite fit in. Maybe I'm not really part of the center of what's happening in the, in the early church, there were two groups of people that sort of made the big segments of the church. There were people who were Jewish, who were raised understanding everything about God and His ways. They had memorized huge sections of the Torah. They had you know, been sitting in the synagogues waiting for someone to come and tell them about the Messiah. Someone told them. They understood everything. And then there were Gentiles. That just means the other people, the foreigners, the strangers who were told about the gospel through this weird culture, through this weird Jewish culture, and then that's how they began to see that Jesus was Lord of all, like we were just singing, and they became part of the church. But all the while, there existed this tension of, maybe for those of us that are not Jewish, we're on the outside still looking in. Like maybe there's this bigger, better, central part of God's plan and God's people that I can't be part of. And so that reality of, I don't know if I belong, you're not special if you feel that, that was pretty prominent in the early church. And Paul's response in Ephesians 2.11 is, remember. That's his solution to this drama, to this internal battle that we face. It's to remember. And so I want to invite us to look at this text and then do that, uh, remembering together. And might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He says, remember all of you who were on the outside. Remember. Remember that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Remember that you were strangers to the covenant of promise and that you had no hope and no God. It's a great and odd way to encourage someone who feels left out. Remember, you were supposed to be left out. I don't think that works on the playground these days. I don't think that's politically correct by any means. Well, you weren't supposed to be here at all. But now you are. But in this, this, these, these first three verses from uh, 11 to, and 12, and then a little bit into 13, Paul is trying to remind them of this whole culture, and this whole reality, and this whole story that they weren't part of before. Uh, And so just to recap, because I don't think for us we are able to conjure up what does it mean exactly to have a commonwealth of Israel to be part of that or not part of that. That seems like no big deal. What are these covenants of promise? So I'm just going to summarize them if that's okay. In the beginning, we all know God created the world and everyone was whole and plentiful. Uh, They got to receive everything that they ever needed. They walked with God. They were one together. But then in Genesis chapter 3, humanity rebels. uh, Everything is broken. In fact... Uh, Genesis 3 has this poem that's just the richest poem of human existence uh, anyone could ever write. Like the the modern novelists that are writing these dystopian novels would, you know, fail to get as good as Genesis chapter 3. Which describes just a breaking of provision, of peace, Uh, broken people, marriages, husbands and wives, men and women hating each other. Fighting against each other for power, for authority, for control. Childbearing, being very difficult and painful and dangerous. Work, being at odds with the human condition. All of these things. Creation itself breaking. That's Genesis 3. And then from there to the end of chapter 10 in Genesis, the world just gets worse. Like the people uh, have... Uh, terrible inclinations. Everything they want to do is evil and wrong and wicked. Uh, it's it's just like today, right? When you scroll through social media and you find out all of these remarkable stories of just how evil humanity is. Like this week on the radio, I heard of a story of someone, uh, a teenager here in the greater Los Angeles area, who beat up and made fun of a kid with autism at high school because he was autistic. And they filmed it and posted it places. That was what humanity has been like and was like. And then in Genesis chapter 11, God makes a covenant, a promise. He comes to Abraham, this guy in the middle of the desert, and says, I'm going to make you into a vast nation I'm going to bless you with land and heritage and all of this thing. But through your life and through your family, the entire world will be blessed. In Genesis 11, we see that what God is promising is that he will bless the world. And that's how he's going to fix it. And he's going to fix it through this family. And so Abraham and Sarah, uh, Abraham's wife, go on this long journey. And it's for another time to describe exactly how that is. But the family ends up uh, resting themselves Uh, in slavery in Egypt, not being blessed, but becoming plentiful. It doesn't seem like they're blessing the whole world, but then God rescues them. It's as if they were carried out of slavery on the wings of an eagle, and God brings them up to this mountain and makes the second installment of the same promise He gave to Abraham, which was... That they would not just be a family, but they would be a whole nation, a nation of priests. That they would live this holy, marked, separated life. And that the rest of the world would not just see that they're weird and different, but would see God himself. Would see the nature of God's redemption and grace and mercy and justice. People would see that through their incredibly odd way of being. Uh, That they would establish a nation where God would be the king. Over everything, and that they would trust in this God and that they would live a life of listening to Him and obeying Him. Where they'd live a life which was totally different than all of the other ancient texts and religions, where they would love God and love their neighbors. That love would be the marking aspect of their life. And they had within this law, if you continue to read in the book of Leviticus, you know you're going to get the whole Bible. But it's, it all builds up. In, in Leviticus, we get this long list of a couple uh, sort of buckets of laws. Some buckets are about how people can be made right and holy. And they're about the sacrificial system. Then there's a whole other bucket that's about ethics and morality. And this is how you live. This is what a human is supposed to be. Things that are not uh, up for grabs, like stealing is wrong. Killing somebody's property is wrong. uh, Going after your wife or somebody else's wife and abuse. All of that is wrong. And then there was this other bucket that I would just call, this is not why my seminary professors told me to call it, but the real strange and the odd, like you can't eat shellfish. I don't know why, like you can't eat pork, I don't know why. They all go in this pile of simply, I think God is wanting them to be weird. And I, with all my, you know, uh, mediocre education, that's the best way I can describe those rules. Or Paul describes them here in this passage as uh, later on, he calls them the ordinances The law of commandments expressed in ordinances and that's the other bucket and so these people try to do that they live out all of the laws they attempt they fail they succeed eventually they reach out and they want to have a king and God allows them to have a king Uh, the first one is bad no time for that the second one was David also bad but also good uh, he did a lot of things that were wonderful. And then a lot of things that we would scratch our heads and say, well, that person should not run a country. He was that kind of person. And at the end of his life, David uh, has this prayer time with God, this sort of wrestling match with God. And David says on ev- almost every line of this passage, I want to build you a house. There's a, you need a house. God, you're living in a tent. Like, you need to be in a house. Because up to that point, the presence of God lived in this tabernacle. And he kept saying, house, house, house. Uh, Let me build you one. I have a house. You don't have a house. Like, David felt guilt that he had built himself this huge palace. And God was still sleeping in a tent. But then God responds to him, giving him this new layer to the covenants of promise. Which is, no, from your family, one of your sons will sit on your throne And be a king the world has never known before. And I will build my own house. You will not build it. Your hands are too bloody. You are too wicked to build my house. And so then there becomes not just a promise that there will be a blessing through a family. Or that there will be a holy nation. But there, there will also be a king who will sit on the throne and build his house, his temple. Where the dwelling place of God exists. And then there's just one more layer. After that, there begins to have these prophets that will come, and they come and they speak. That not only is God going to do all of that, but God is also promising to make dead people alive. That our dry bones would be filled with life. That our hearts of stone would have a heart of flesh. This is all uh, in Ezekiel. That even Isaiah prophesies that God will, will, on His holy mountain, on Zion, the whole nations will come and they will know God. And that they will worship God. That, that not only will the country exist as this holy priesthood, but that they will come in. And that they will be part of it. And like, no longer will the, the nation of Israel try to tell their neighbors, these other countries, this is what God is like but their neighbors will know what God is like. This is what it means to be part of the covenant of promise. To be a person who's of the lineage of Abraham. To be born into this incredible status of a, of, as a nation of priests. As a, as a person who's waiting for a king to come to rule over everything. And I hope what you see too is that these promises are not just geared towards uh, the, the restoration of this one tiny people group in the whole scheme of things. But all of the covenants, every step of it, was about these people and the world. It was about God using these people to repair and to bless and to make the world restored for everyone to come in to the dwelling place of God. And so when Paul says, remember, you were once on the outside looking in. He really means it. While God, there was this huge promise and this huge plan of redemption that was happening, you weren't part of it. You were the destination of it. That, that all of these covenants and all of these promises that God had made with people wasn't to... Uh, it wasn't for you to be part of, but it was directed towards you. And he also said you didn't have any hope for all the brokenness of this world. And that's true. Outside of this big redemptive plan, what would you say? What is the hope? What where would you look to to find some sort of hope and, and restoration? Even if you were a very learned person back then, you could, and you knew all the history of empires coming and going, you would still have to say, there really is no hope even in our own empire. And he says, remember, you weren't part of the family of God. You really were far off. Your view of the world was without the presence of God. You were going to the market, you were going to work, you were raising your families, and you had no conception of the place of God or His people. You didn't know the things of God, you didn't love God. You were completely on the outside. And often uh, we want to go back in our stories, and I think it's a good endeavor. Most counselors will make you do that. And we often want to go back... Uh, and we'll find that the victims that we've, we've made. Like, we've made victims. And we've also go back in our stories to see how we ourselves became victims. And all of that is good. However, what Paul is saying here is, remember not just the sin and the death that you were in, which is last chapter, but remember who you were in relation to God. That your story... Once was just this solo act. It was just this big, long monologue. Your story was just all that you could see. Remember the brokenness of not having hope, of being alienated, of being isolated. And then he says in verse 14 or 13, sorry, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself... Sorry, I lost my place. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He says, remember also that you are now at peace remember that you've been brought into union with Christ. That you've been brought close to Jesus by the blood of Christ. Because often what we would try to do to get in on that story, this redemptive story... Might be to work harder, to be better, the things that we talk about all the time. But here Paul says, you've been brought near, you who are really far off, who were not part of these promises at all, you've been brought near, you're close, you're part of it. It's because of the blood of Jesus himself. Through his own death and his own resurrection, you've been brought to Christ himself. Now you taste and you hold within your life the hope of the entire world, your hope for your life. It's Jesus, you've been brought close to it. You were far, and now you've been brought in. No longer is the plan just uh, headed towards the world generically, but now the plan of God comes to you, and now it comes through you, like you're part of the whole thing. And so for us this morning, uh, one of the graces of God that we find in this text is that the story of God's promise actually captures us. It envelops our lives. So we go from being somebody on the outside. Uh, I used to do this as a kid when I started making friends in Portugal, is I would stand outside of concert venues, you know, asking for tickets after the shows started. Like, hey, are you, do, you, do you really want to go watch the last half of the show? I really care. Can you please let me get, I'll take your ticket. Uh, we, would, my brother and I, we would make jokes on the steps of these venues and try to get people to laugh at us. We would play our American charm music. We would be able to cover popular songs, but do it with like out an accent. People loved us. And we would just sort of be out there begging at the box office. Give us a ticket. We just want to go in. And then after it started, we'd go to the box office itself and say, Hey, it's already going. Like, what's too... You know, handsome people going to do to this concert. Just let us walk in. And they never, ever did. Uh, I missed out, uh, just to show when I was cool. I missed out on Coldplay. I missed out on Phil Collins, I missed out on YouTube. I missed out on all of these people uh, Avril Lavigne. I mean, you know, that sort of stuff. But what Paul is saying here is that we've been taken from that outside begging at the box office for a ticket, and we're not just brought into the show, but we're put on the stage like part of the whole miraculous thing. We've been taken from being way outside to being put on center stage with God in Christ, part of His Gospel message. We're not just watching Him do His thing, but we're part of the whole plan of God. A crucial piece to it. That's what he means when we've been drawn near, when we've been brought near. But this also, as we see in the rest of the verses, isn't some sort of solo act, like God now puts us in the middle of the play, in the middle of the show, and we're just doing a solo again, just in a better position. It's also not a duet, as some people often think, like, well, now I've been brought near to God, like this, is, this verse is used a lot for us to feel really great, but now we're brought, brought near to God, and I get to do this duet thing with God. Like, it's just me and Jesus, and we get to do our whole thing. I have him for myself, we get to share, I have this relationship with God you wouldn't even believe, it's so great. But the reality is, is it's not a duet, it's not a solo. We've been brought into this remarkable crowd in center stage for all of human history. We're part of the church, which is what he goes on to say. And I'm going to read 15 uh, or 14 again. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And so making peace and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off. And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Here he says you weren't just brought near. Like hey, now we're going to let these outsiders be part of this. You were brought in and made one. With all the people that were born and raised in this covenant of promise. And that God didn't create two men. Or, or Two bodies. One that's Jewish and one that's Gentile, or one that that grew up as a Christian and has been good all his life, and one who just sort of squeaked in at the very end. God's super gracious, that kind of thing. But He created one, and so He made peace. He does away with the laws of commandments expressed in the ordinances. No longer are you a good person because you don't, you know, mix dairy with beef like you're good. Either way. No longer do you get in on it by uh, doing all of these strange things, but you're part of it because of the blood of Jesus. And he made for himself one body. Remember that we were really created as one body, one Soma. This is why our church is named what it is. It's for, yeah, for the love of God. It's not an acronym. So uh, I just want to say that. Like the S doesn't stand for something. I've heard people try. It's the Servant of Missionary Ambassadors. That's what your church stands for. No, it's not an acronym. So don't capitalize all the letters when you're writing it to your friends. It's capital S-O-M-A. Sorry. Dorky thing of my part. Soma simply is the Greek word for body. That gets used repeatedly through all of these uh, New Testament letters to describe what the church is. He describes it as one singular flesh and blood with Jesus as the head and us as members of that body. All crucial and necessary that we live a life of being incarnated images of Jesus. That together, not as individuals, but together as the church, the world gets to know what God is like and how great of a rescuer Jesus really is. That it's us as the body. That when Jesus ascends into heaven and gives the spirit to the church, that we together get to walk as Jesus' life and blood and flesh on this earth. That's why that's the name of our church. Because everybody has a part to play. And it's also this unifying, beautiful picture. And that's what Paul is describing here. He's saying that we've all been saved by the cross. Both the near needed the gospel to be preached to them, and also the far. It's a really great trick that Paul does here. You think that he's just talking about Gentiles, but then he says, and so so Jesus came and preached to you who were far off peace. And he also came to those of you who were close, and he preached peace. Remember that you both needed Jesus to come to you and say, you're at war with me. And I've made peace. So, the the thing is about uh, unity and disunity and belonging or not belonging is not that we need to do away with disagreements or miscommunications, but we have to come to the place where we all believe, because it's true. That the only way to peace with God, the only way to be part of his plan to get all the riches and all the stuff that we've talked about is through Jesus coming and interrupting all of our lives. See, most disunity that I've encountered and I was a pastor's kid and then a missionary kid. So I've been around churches for uh, 33 years. Like most of the disunity is not about what should we do with these streamers? Should we cut them down or not? But it has a lot more to do with us thinking that we're better than other people. It comes from us saying, there are some people in here that are my peers. We're equal. We've walked a road of of pain and suffering. And we've learned how to read the Bible and how to pray and do spiritual things. There are some people in this room that are my equal. And then there are others that are just getting started. That is the beginning of disunity. Some of us are originals, and some of us are immigrants to this whole church. Some of us have been good all along. Like we never strayed, we never did anything bad. People can't pull up dirt on us from our past, and then others of us, well, we're just recovering. And just some of the language that we use around this is we would say when someone acts up or is uh, disruptive, we would say, well, she has a hard story because I don't, so I can act well. Or we might think uh, along those same lines, that's often what turns our hearts into feeling like we don't belong. Honestly, when I was a kid, I slowly began to realize that people weren't staring at me. I was staring at them, like all the time. And it didn't matter what anyone did, I found myself being special or unique or outside of the whole culture. Here Paul says, remember, it doesn't matter where you came from, you needed Jesus. Jesus. The people who were close, that all they needed was Paul to come into the synagogue, were just as much on the mercy of God as the person who was a prostitute far down the street who didn't know anything about it. You all needed Jesus. And then he says here, remember, uh, so that, uh, sorry, in verse 19, uh, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints." That no longer is anyone here an outsider petitioning for immigration, but you're all citizens. You've all been brought in and all have access to the Father through one Spirit forever. That in the kingdom of God, there isn't a hierarchy of people that get in the Senate or people that uh, get to make decisions, there's not executives and middle managers and just basic people. In the kingdom of God, there's a king and then there's citizens. That's it. That is the entire hierarchy of the Christian hope that is the kingdom of God. You're all citizens. Then lastly, he says, we're all members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That in the end, the house that Jesus has built, the house that the King of David, the, the blessing of the entire world, the family, we're part of it. We're not brought in as stepsisters or friends of the family or anything like that. We're brought in as very, the very children of God, members of this household that will not crumble. That the, the mortar and the bricks of your life, every aspect of who you are, where you've come from and where you've headed is crucial to the very structure of the church itself. That, that your life is meshed and with concrete and mud molded to that of my life. That we together make the household. That the foundation is all of the, the wonderful saints, the, the mothers and the fathers of the faith who told us the gospel. And that is the foundation for every church, for the church Uh, global. And then Jesus himself is the cornerstone that if you remove him, the whole thing tumbles. But within that, we are all being built up into this household that's dependent on each other. And then the remarkable thing is, is that we look back and we see, oh, we are the holy temple of God. That is who we are. So what does all of this mean? For us and our sense of belonging, it means that you're a body, it uh, you, means you're a member of the body God made through the cross. You're part of Soma. So you should live as part of that body, as if your life is crucial and necessary, as if your understanding of the gospel and what you know today is good for everyone here in this church, that what you have to give. And what you've learned and what you've come to see is not just an icing on, the, t- on like the cake, but it's necessary for us to be the body of Christ. It means that you're empowered citizens. in this kingdom that doesn't know borders or walls or checkpoints, it only knows the love of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So live an empowered life with your eyes on the kingdom of God but also live understanding you're a servant to Jesus who's Lord over all, not on your own doing some miraculous thing somewhere, but with a whole cloud of witnesses, a whole group of saints. It means that you're part of the family of God with access to the Father. The Father who welcomes you into His love for the sake of His love and His glory. So live in that family live as an active member of that family. Again, as if you weren't there, if you're not part of this family, we can't do what God has called us to do. We can't be who God has called us to be. It's like trying to have a family reunion without the grandparents. It's like, well, what what point is that? Or having a, yeah, a Christmas Thanksgiving where it's just you in the corner. It's like, well, that's not... Being part of the family of God, to so live as part of the family is a crucial. You showing up is necessary. It also means that your life, all of it, is part of the building up in this temple of God itself. That your faith is built on this foundation of faithful, faithful apostles and prophets, who have given you the message of grace clearly. And so you're being built up. So give yourself to the building up of the household. Because, yet again, you're necessary. And remember, lastly, that you belong. You belong. Uh, I think that that's probably why I love the church. So I knew pretty young that uh, all the stuff that I was just sharing in the beginning about my childhood... I knew that that was going on inside of me. But then I began to engage this church called Grace. Uh, Mirella was part of it. That's why we're married. I don't know. Probably. Uh, and in this church, there were people that were immigrants. There were poor people. There were rich people. There were people that I think were there when Portugal became a country. They were so old. There were widows that the church cared for as widows. Uh, There were people that had important businesses And then people that didn't have any business at all Any work at all We all uh, tried to speak a common language Though there were different dialects and different accents All swirling around But it was in that church as people began to share the suffering And the pain and also the joys That I fell in love with the people of God Because I began to know, especially uh, after I began to believe in Jesus, that this was the only place on earth I would ever feel like I belong until the kingdom of God comes and I can't wait for it because outside of the church we're just strangers and wanderers in this world. So remember, you belong to the family, the household, the promises of God that the story now goes through you as we live on the very mission and the purpose of God of seeing many, many more people come to be part of this family. It's a good thing to give your life towards. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it's true. I pray that we continue to be made new by the Scriptures. I pray that your spirit would take what we read and what we heard today and really grow it. Uh, grow it into understanding, and into transformation. You, O oh God, are the cornerstone of everything. That you are the one that has brought us near by your blood. And no words can uh, quite capture that. I pray that you would uh, enliven our hearts with understanding. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.